Alexander began to look at last week when he began the book of Vaikra or Leviticus, and he did a great job explaining all the different all the different offerings and some of their meanings, and that's up on the website if you'd like to go look at that. And so I'm going to start with this week's Torah portion a little bit and um, what gems are in there this week, and then I'm going to talk about a little bit on how these laws prepare us to recognize and appreciate Yeshua's suffering and resurrection for the world, which is especially relevant in um, this Pesach preparation season we're entering into, Passover's not far away now. And then I'll finish off with um, how this helps us to implement some self-improvement. I could use a little self-improvement and a little encouragement. The primary focus of last week's and this week's parashas, yeah, there's a lot of imagery in there of things, animals, right, slaughtering, blood being poured out, blood being splashed, you have burning of fat and um, burning of kidneys and inner organs, all these things. To the modern mind, right, the idea of animal sacrifice is a bit strange and sometimes uh, one of the more disturbing subjects that is found in Scripture. I mean, if animal sacrifice were to actually start to take place today, you can imagine the uproar. In today's modern language, the word sacrifice, the English word sacrifice, means an act of self-deprivation. So in other words, we uh, give up something of value for the sake of something greater. You know, you... Uh, you might sacrifice going on vacation so you can get your kids braces, things like that. That's kind of what we think of when we think of sacrifice. Um, it's about attaining goals or getting something in return for giving up something. But the word sacrifice does leave much to be desired. This English word is a translation for the Hebrew word korban, of course. That's what it is in the Hebrew. It doesn't it says korban. That's what the translation is. And Mike, last week, did a great job uh, explaining and really fleshing out the different meanings of korban and the different offerings. Korban means to draw near or to approach, as in bringing an offering to the altar. You're going to draw near the altar. So the word sacrifice, when you hear that word, it kind of creates a mental image of somebody trying to appease an angry and demanding God. The word korban, however, should create a much more loving and compassionate mental image. What we can say then concerning the korban is that it's the means by which we can be drawn closer to God. That's why he wanted the system created in the first place. He wanted to dwell with his people. So let's read a little bit of Torah. We're going to get started in the Torah portion this week. We're going to be back in uh, Vayikra chapter 6. It's on page 114 in your Stearns. Or if you have a different version of Scripture, you're going to have to get over to Leviticus chapter 6. Page 114. Um, I'm going to start off reading in verse 7. I'm just going to read a few verses here. So this is uh, Vayikra, chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 7. This is the law for the grain offering. The sons of Aharon are to offer it before Adonai in front of the altar. 
He is to take from the grain offering a handful of its fine flour, some of its olive oil and all of its frankincense, which is on the grain offering, and he is to make, uh, he is to make this reminder portion of it go up in smoke on the altar as a fragrant aroma for Adonai, right? It's a fragrant aroma. The rest of it... Aharon and his sons are to eat. It is to be eaten without leaven in a holy place. They are to eat it in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. It is not to be eaten with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my offerings made by fire. Like the sin offering and the guilt offering, it is especially holy. Every male descendant of Aharon may eat of it. It is his share of the offerings for Adonai made by fire uh, forever throughout all your generations. Whoever touches those offerings will become holy. Isn't that kind of a weird concept? Whoever touches those offerings will become holy. Holiness is a central theme, of course, to the book of Aikra. There is holiness in space, right? The Mishkan, the tent of meeting area. Um, there's holiness in time. Shabbat, we have the different Moedim that come up in the book of, Le- of Leviticus. And there's holiness as a status or a condition. You can become consecrated and become holy, or you can touch something and become holy. That seems kind of uh, foreign to many of us. We experience some of this. We experience holiness in space, right? We worship here. Uh, we pray together here um, in this space here. Uh, uh, we, this is a place set apart for us. We hear the words of Scripture right here. And we recognize holiness in time as well. Shabbat is the most obvious example. We prepare for this day. Shabbat, we come here dressed in our best clothing. Um, we are on our best behavior. You know, sometimes throughout the week, you know how the week goes. You're on your best behavior on Shabbat. Holiness is a subject that I will be leaning on and working on as we continue throughout Vayikra and as we close in on Pesach and how that really dovetails with Yeshua and his death and resurrection. You know, so much of the uh, beginning chapters of Leviticus can seem just dry and outdated, but when we really uh, dig into them, there's really a lot there that uh, the Torah can offer us. For example... There's a nice little pearl in here regarding leadership and sin. Leadership and sin. We can contrast a couple different passages in here and draw something from that. If you look at chapter 6, here we are in chapter 6. Let's go down to verse 17. We're going to read a little bit about the sin offering. Vayikra chapter 6, verse 17. Adonai said to Moshe, tell Aharon and his sons, This is the law for the sin offering. The sin offering is to be slaughtered before Adonai in the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. It is especially holy. The Kohen, or the priest, who offers it uh, for sin is to eat it, right? He's to eat it. It is to be eaten in a holy place in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. So right there um, inside the courtyard, right where it's slaughtered. Now contrast that a little bit with the sin offering for the priests. Amanda read this this morning. Turn the page. And in chapter 8, we read about uh, uh, Moshe, you know, gathering everybody together. He's consecrating Aharon, right? This is an installation of the priesthood. Here we have another little bit of a sin offering going on. But it's a little different. 
So it's chapter 8, verse 14. Then the young bull for the sin offering was brought, and Aharon and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull for the sin offering. After it had been slaughtered, Moshe took the blood and put it on the horns of the altar all the way around with his finger, thus purifying the altar. The remaining blood he poured out at the base right of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. Moshe took all the fat uh, on the inner organs, the covering of the liver, the kidneys, the fat, and made it go up in smoke. But the bull, its hide, its flesh, and its dung were taken outside the camp and burned up completely. You see the kind of two differences there? In the first sin offering, the sin offering is uh, slaughtered and, and burned up and eaten there on the spot. But when it comes to Aharon and the priests, right, this is the leadership, their sin offering is taken outside of the camp and burned up out there. Uh, Rabbi Shaul Rosenblatt offers an explanation that I thought very helpful for this. He said the sin offering for regular people was not allowed outside of the Mishkan, outside of the tent of meeting, right? So that the people would not ask questions and find out who had transgressed. This was in order to protect the dignity of the person. They go in there for a sin offering, right? They bring the sin offering to the priest. It's, all the business is done right in there. So the general public really doesn't see it. However, for the sin offering of the priests... The Torah wants to publicize his transgression, right? He has to take his sin offering outside of the Mishkan for everybody to see. The Torah wants the world to see that even a priest can transgress. He is not an angel, you know, he's just a human being. And as such, he's subject to the same desires and selfish motivations and just really bad character traits that everyone else has. I mean, true, all leaders should have a high standard of conduct. I mean, that's just scriptural. All through the Tanakh, you have uh, standards of conduct and expectations for priests and Kohen and high priests and kings. And in the apostolic writings, you have expectations and uh, requirements for elders and leaders of congregations. It's just scriptural. But then again, there's still people, and they're not perfect. And sometimes, you know, uh, you see through the law of the sin offerings that that's kind of exposed. It's reminding the people, listen, your leaders aren't exactly perfect. Sometimes, you know, they fail. Sometimes they have their moments, moments that they wish they could take back. I know I've had moments that I wish I could have taken back. In a similar vein, the Talmud tells us that uh, a sage should be toka kabaro, which means his inside like his outside. It does not say that a sage or a leader should be perfect. It simply says that they should be both the same as they are on the inside as they are on the outside. It should be the same. There should be no pretending or no covering up. So if there are imperfections on the inside, a good leader will not pretend to others that they're not there. He will accept them and strive to improve them. And we all have things to improve on, and thankfully, we are entering a season of heightened self-improvement. We're going to be getting out some leaven here in the next few weeks as we get towards Passover. So let's move on a little bit and think about the upcoming Passover season and contemplate why studying Vayikra, or Leviticus, is beneficial and relevant 
to the follower of our Messiah. I mean, the book of Vayikra, Leviticus, uh, details the, the Levitical system and the Mishkan, you know, all the different temple ritual. And so traditionally for Jews, this is where young children begin to learn Torah. Traditionally for much of the church, this book is largely irrelevant. It seems difficult for some to appreciate the Levitical system as its status seems to be relegated to a uh, copy in a shadow, right? That's what a lot of people we just kind of dismiss Leviticus. It's just a copy and a shadow, right? Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 5. It's a copy and a shadow of, of things to come. But that copy and shadow imagery doesn't originate in the book of Hebrews. It's actually from Torah, Exodus chapter 25. That's the way the whole thing was designed to begin with when Moshe is brought up on the mountain and Adonai tells him, hey, are you going to make this, uh, make this thing like this, like what you see on the mountain? So... Being a copy in a shadow isn't denigration. It's just the earthly representation of the heavenly. This is the way it was meant to be, and it's functioning just fine. So this should make the book of Vayikra or Leviticus interesting to people, not something to be dismissed so quickly. I mean, consider this. For years after the resurrection of our Messiah, the Talmudim, the apostles, uh, even Paul worshipped there. And so temple and uh, sacrificial imagery, it permeates the apostolic writings. And I believe there can be synthesis between the offerings in the temple and allegiance to Yeshua at the same time. Because if you have a great understanding of a lot of these sacrifices, you have a little bit better understanding of your faith in Yeshua. It'll be, it'll be richer. For example, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 has an interesting little kind of uh, example of what I'm talking about here. It's on page 1407 if you care to turn there. I'm only going to read a verse or two. But it's Romans chapter 5. Let's see here, page 1407. Mm hmm. And I think I'm going to begin. I'm just going to start in verse 1 is where my example's from. Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 1. So since we have come to be considered righteous by God because of our trust, let us continue to have shalom, that's peace, with God through our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. Now that sounds... You know, that sounds great. That sounds very uh, edifying, right? We have peace through God our Lord, peace with God through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Now, how did the ancient Israelite uh, acquire peace with God, right? Well, he would acquire peace with God through the peace offering, of course. That's one of the offerings Mike talked about last week. That's one of the offerings that's listed among all the different, um, different offerings, the sin offering, got all these different... Uh, you have the burnt offering, right? And then there's the peace offering. And of course, through the work of uh, Yeshua the Messiah, we have ultimate peace with God. So there is sort of that combining of what they know from ritual with the work that Yeshua has done to us. That's what's kind of being communicated here. And so uh, the Israelite that's familiar with the sacrificial system would kind of make that connection. But the apostles, even after the resurrection, they were still going to the temple and taking part in the peace offering. 
So was that an empty gesture of some kind? I mean, it would seem very inappropriate for the apostles to take part in empty gestures, wouldn't it? I think the offerings that they took part in, and theoretically any offerings that might come up in the future if they rebuild the temple, are worthy of merit and pleasing to Adonai, right? They're a pleasing aroma. I would think that the, uh, the peace offering uh, is in dedication of Yeshua making peace in the heavens on our behalf, perhaps. But certainly knowing and studying these, and even on some level taking part in them, if you are able to, is very edifying, and you uh, begin to draw a lot of um, parallels between the work that Yeshua did for us. David Lancaster does some great work in examining uh, Levitical rituals and sacrifices and how that dovetails with the offering of Yeshua and his resurrection. Uh, he notes a pattern in this week's Torah portion that I think is very valuable and has insight. So let's go back to this. I think we're going to finish up back in this week's Torah portion. Go back to page 114. There's another great insight in this week's Parsha. And it has to do with patterns. So much in Torah and Scripture has patterns and cycles, and they're there for a reason. 114. So, if we begin to look for a pattern in these sacrifices, we can kind of see one develop here. Uh, chapter 6, verse uh, 17 is what I just read uh, a few minutes ago, that's the law for the sin offering, right? Uh, that the people bring and is burned up inside the tabernacle. So you have a sin offering, and then chapter 7, verse 1, you have this is the law for the guilt offering. So you have sin, then you have guilt. A little bit later on, that would be uh, verse 5, you have the burnt offering or the ola offering. And then verse 11, this is the law for the peace offering. So first you have a sin offering, then a guilt offering or burnt offering, and then you have a peace offering. And the peace offering is a Thanksgiving sacrifice of unleavened cakes and olive oil, matzah spread with olive oil, and cakes made of fine flour mixed with olive oil and fried. Uh, with cakes of leavened bread, he used to present his offering together with sacrifice of his peace offerings. So there's sin, there's guilt, maybe burnt offering, and then peace offering. Now you turn the page and you see this pattern repeated again. Uh, chapter 8, where Amanda had us, uh, verse 14, I read that a little bit earlier too, the young bull for the sin offering, this is the sin offering they uh, do outside of the camp. So there's a sin offering, and then down in verse uh, 18, next, uh, the ram for the burnt offering was presented. And then, verse 22, uh, then the other ram was presented, and a ram of consecration. Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and after it had been slaughtered, uh, Moshe took some of his blood and put it on the tip of Aaron's right ear, on the right uh, thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Next, Aharon's sons were brought, and Moshe put some of the blood on the tips of their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then he splashes the blood on the sides of the altar. He takes on the fat, and the, uh, the fat tail, and all the inner organs, right, and the thigh. And from the basket of matzah that was before Adonai, he took a piece of matzah and one cake of oiled bread and one wafer. This is... Uh, um, essentially peace offering material here and placed them on the fat and on the thigh area and he put it in Aharon's hands 
and they have a wave offering. That's essentially a peace offering is what that is because that's all the components of the peace offering. And so here you have in chapter 8, you have them starting out with a sin offering, and then you have them going to a burnt offering, and then a wave or a peace offering. And so David Lancaster has quite lengthy uh, commentary on that. I'm just going to read a few sentences on what he says about this pattern. Lancaster says, This pattern teaches about the approach to God. Before one may draw near God and enjoy the fellowship of peace with God, partaking in the table of the Lord, he must first deal with the obstacles to fellowship. The sin offering acknowledges his unworthiness, his sinful and errant ways, and his uncleanliness before the pure, righteous God. The burnt offering represents total giving over to God and a surrender to his absolute uh, sway and abandonment of self. And only after the impurity of sin has been cleansed and the person's been surrendered can they enjoy peace. So you see that pattern of uh, sin and and, uh, the Ola burnt up offering leads to peace. And we see quickly developing an obvious connection to Yeshua, right? If you start out with sin, there has to be an unblemished offering. You can't have a blemished offering. And Yeshua's sinless life was that blemished offering. When you think of the Ola offering, the burnt offering, remember Mike talked about this last week. The Ola offering was a lamb, right? And the uh, very first thing, the very last thing was the continual, the Ola offerings. It was a lamb, right? The lamb of God. There's so much of that imagery there. And then he became our peace offering, redeeming us back to Adonai. That kind of, that's that Romans chapter 5, verse 1. We have peace with God through Yeshua the Messiah. That's how we have peace with him. And all throughout uh, many of the different sacrifices, there's so many different ways to kind of sit back and meditate on these things and look at them and realize there's so many parallels there that you just would never see before that really help uh, enrich your faith in Yeshua. And um, those are some of the things that as we get closer to Passover, we're going to work on. Of course, this Passover season, we're working on... uh, uh, the sort of nuts and bolts kind of things, putting a, a Pesach Seder together. We have some uh, new services we kind of have planned. But we are also going to further be fleshing out the messianic implications found in the book of Vayikra and the apostolic writings. And being that uh, Passover is coming up, we will be seeking to increase our self-improvement. A couple times a year, during the spring Moedim and the fall High Holy Days, we uh, focus on self-improvement. It would be nice if we could be, uh, just maintain a high st- you know, level of righteousness all the time, right? Just be unblemished 24-7. That would be nice. But it's hard. It's hard to maintain that. There's so much that affects us, right? We have work, and we have life, and we have family, Um, There's things that bring us much joy. There's things that bring us much sadness. And so with life, sometimes we get distracted. But the Moedim, what's great about the Moedim is there's a schedule there, a set schedule, which somehow just meshes with humanity so well so that periodically throughout the year, we can sort of refocus and hone our character a little bit and get some of that uh, spiritual momentum going. 
and we have one of those events coming up in just a, uh, in several weeks. And so this divine schedule uh, really helps us to improve our own life, our spiritual life, our family life, and our communal life. And uh, it's an opportunity to help us let our light shine a little clearer and brighter as we uh, kind of walk out, you know, our faith in this dark world. That Torah is a light to our path and it's full of wisdom and correction and encouragement. So let us use that divine revelation to help us improve ourselves, right? We've got to work on our own hearts. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7 says, Adonai said to Shmuel, don't pay attention to how he looks or how tall he is because I've rejected him. Adonai doesn't see the way human beings see. Humans look towards the outward appearance, but Adonai looks at the heart. As we are drawing closer to Pesach this, this season, let us uh, examine our own hearts and look into there for, uh, to begin to identify any leaven that we might be uh, getting ready to purge. Um, let us uh, reinvigorate our spirit and be ever aware of each other and how we can help one another and how we can bless one another, all for the glory of God and for the sake of his kingdom. Shabbat shalom.